Welcome to episode 31 in the third season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. We'll start today's show by discussing the recent Justice Center George Jonas Award dinner in Calgary last week, because we, that is John and I, were both there. And by the way, this was the first JCCF award dinner that I've attended. So, John, thanks for inviting me, and thanks for the kind words you said about me from the stage as you introduced the entire Justice Center crew, lawyers and staff. Just an FYI, what did he say about me? He said it was a pity that we only do an audio podcast, because Kevin's such a good-looking guy. No, he didn't. But he thanked me for my work, and a whole bunch of other people did as well. So for this home office toiler, it was a real boost to my morale to have so many people give me a little pat in the back. Reinflated my ego, I guess. I would like to reciprocate somewhat by saying a big thank you to all the good people I met that evening, especially the supporters and donors that form the base of this organization. You people are great. Thank you. I have a special shout out to the folks who were my dinner table companions, two retired couples from Three Hills. Actually, one of those people, a retired pastor, is now mentoring people who are in the midst of a midlife crisis. So he's actually not retired, still doing good work. And also at my table were four from Kelowna, all related, a married couple, both healthcare professionals. And they were there with the woman's mother and her sister. I got to sit beside the sister and we discussed, among other things, VQA wine, all quite delightful. And over an excellent meal, everyone told of how they became involved with the center. These people went a long way in convincing me that I really need to get out of the house more often. There are a lot of nice people out there. I also got to catch up a bit with some old acquaintances, not the least of whom was my old boss at the Western Standard when it was a print magazine, Ezra Levant, who booked a whole table for the Rebel News. And at that table... I recognized Ezra's father, someone I hadn't seen in over 15 years. Ezra's father wouldn't recognize me because we had only met once and briefly in the old Western Standard office on the Red Mile. But I mentioned him because the date of that dinner happened to be the birthday of my own dear departed father, and I was thinking about him quite a bit. And so when I saw Ezra's father at his table, I couldn't help but reflect, Ezra, you're a good man for bringing your dad. What else? Oh, I got to meet Tamara Leach. That was a highlight. Later, she would deliver a great speech, as did Brian Peckford. And I met, for the first time, many, but not all of my colleagues at the center. And after it was all over, as I stepped out into the balmy Calgary night, directly in front of me, at almost eye level, was this magnificent full moon, yellow moon, which was apparently the last supermoon of the year. The lady from Kelowna, who was at my dinner table, the mother, not the sister, said to me as she walked past, Kevin, did you see the moon? Yes, yes, I did. A good omen. So that's a small recap of my evening, a view from the floor. John, you were, of course, hosting this event. And so maybe you can give us a view from higher up, the 40,000-foot view. How did it go? How did it look from your perspective? I saw over 300 very excited, very happy people that were thrilled to be celebrating freedom. And um, 
it was a happier event closer to the the Toronto dinner was very happy. There were over 300 people there. The Vancouver dinner, there was a bit of a sad undertone because Tamara was in prison. And so instead of hearing uh, Tamara Leach herself, we viewed a video of Tamara's speech in Toronto that she presented on, on June the 16th in Toronto. We watched that in in Vancouver on July the 13th. But now back in Calgary, Tamara delivered um, excellent, fantastic speech. Uh, the communications team, uh, Marnie Cathcart and uh, Ignatius Smith and others had put together a really good video about the, uh, the peaceful protest in Ottawa and how it was a great awakening. I mentioned in my remarks that, that the convoy, I think, transformed the country in that people were rescued from their sense of feeling alone. Because if you think you're the only person uh, in your classroom at university, or you're the only person at your workplace, or you're the only person at your church, or the only person at whatever, and and then the, tr- the, the, the convoy just helped people realize, oh, you know what, there's a lot of Canadians who understand that these measures are not just stupid and silly, but but harmful and destructive and, and not based on science. So it's it's that was, I think, a big awakening amongst Canadians that, hey, uh, those of us who have sensed that the, the, for the past two and a half years that, 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 that there's something wrong with, you know, policies based on the big lie that COVID is akin to the Spanish flu of 1918 when it is not. And I always reference that because that's the big lie that got everybody into a state of fear. And people who are afraid are eager for a very simple solution or what appears to be Mm -hmm. a solution, whether it's a good one or a bad one. But if you're in a state of fear, you're very, somebody else, somebody comes along and says, okay, you know, take away all your rights and freedoms. And here's this wonderful solution to the problem. And people will accept that because they are afraid. Why are they afraid? Because the government and the media have been fear-mongering by claiming falsely that COVID is like the Spanish flu of 1918, which killed tens of millions of people. Uh, and now, you know, COVID has, has become uh, less than 1% as bad as the Spanish flu of 1918. So, right. so that convoy transformed the country. So looking at it from, uh, I really enjoyed introducing, uh, and I did this in Toronto as well. There were a half dozen or so staff lawyers in Toronto that were present and uh, paralegals. And then in Calgary, uh, uh, there's also, there's a half dozen lawyers there, including our staff lawyers from uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan and BC who chose to, to uh, come in for the dinner. There's communication staff. So that'd be communications director, campaigns director, uh, education programs coordinator, and uh, Kevin Steele, our podcast producer. So I was happy to introduce you to the people who were there. And so we had the lawyers, the paralegals, and we had the admin staff. And so lots of introductions. I introduced Dr. Roger Hodkinson and thanked him and I'm not sure if there were other doctors there, but that was also a big game changer at, when we were at, at kind of the the depth of darkness or the, the height of the right. restrictions, however you want to characterize it. You know, the government's intimidation strategy has been to say that if you disagree with lockdowns, you're anti-science and you're just 
basically you're just stupid or you don't care about saving lives, right? Or both, you know, right, you, yeah, that's you, it, yeah. you question lockdowns and say, well, you don't, you don't care about uh, other people. Uh, you want everybody to die or you're anti-science or both. And at, at, in those times, it's especially the medical doctors that have a very important voice. So when medical doctor says, hey, you know, this does not match up with science and medicine, it forces the government to, uh, if they have any integrity, they have to address the, the argument because they can't just shoot them down and saying, well, you're anti-science because this is a medical doctor. So he got a huge, I think he got a standing ovation. He got a huge round of applause. Yes, he did, yeah. Dr. Yeah, uh, did, yeah. Dr. Roger Hod- Hodkinson. And who were some other people that uh, said well, our Maxine staff? Maxine Bernier, who's a- Elected representatives, yeah. So we had, yeah, we had Drew, Drew Barnes, a uh, uh, member of the Legislative Assembly of Alberta. You know, it takes courage to speak your opinions when you're a minority voice, right? When you're part of the oh, majority, yeah. it's just really easy to say whatever you want, you know. But when when, it, when you're part of a minority, it's a lot harder to stand up and to. Uh, so uh, Drew Barnes, MLA, was one of the one of the MLAs, not the only one that has been speaking up for charter freedoms and um, against the, the lockdown measures. And he happens to be the MLA for the provincial constituency where Tamara Leach lives in Medicine Hat. Right. Yeah. So that, that nicely lined up as well. Yeah. And of course, uh, keynote speaker, uh, Brian Peckford, who referenced Maxine Bernier as one of the few national leaders who stood up uh, during our time of need and spoke uh, truth to power, which let's face it, you know, uh, was pretty rare during that, uh, those dark days. So, I think one of the things that uh, that video you had referenced earlier that was introduced uh, introducing Tamara just before she spoke, one thing it highlighted is that you know these these were not only spiritually dark days. This happened in winter as well, February, <laughs> and, and I think that kind of I would say emphasized the the whole you know sort of emotional explosiveness of it. The fact that it happened in the darkest of winter and everybody coming out of two years of lockdowns, uh, the joy was just overwhelming. And, uh, and that's part of what not only drove the convoy, but drove people in other parts of the world to sort of draw inspiration from it. So it wasn't just a Canadian thing that was started with the convoy, you know, it, it helped inspire others around the world as well. And I think that, uh, that contribution needs to be recognized as well. So. Absolutely. So the uh, people tell me they enjoyed the evening. Uh, people thought it was memorable, that it was unforgettable. It was great uh, because it's it's fun to be in a room with with 300 other uh, freedom-loving Canadians that have, have come there to celebrate uh, Canada's heritage of constitutional rights and freedoms. I mean, one of the things that sets uh, – it, it's only a minority – of, of countries that really have this where there's the rule of law and the law applies to everybody and, the, um, you know, not including the king and the rules applied equally to people, not just to the king's favorites. Uh, this whole evolution over centuries to, to bring us to a point and, and now sadly in Canada is rapidly disappearing where We've par- partially become a banana republic where when you publicly criticize the prime minister, uh, next thing you know, you end up in jail. 
And this is what happened to Tamara Leach and other peaceful protesters in Ottawa to be criminally charged uh, and arrested and jailed and then to be treated so uh, treated uh, worse than violent criminals and pedophiles and drug dealers, uh, just the fanaticism with which the Crown has prosecuted and insisted on jailing. I've talked to a lot of criminal defense lawyers and, and Crown prosecutors, and they tell me it's normal. Yes, if you're out on bail and you breach a bail condition, it is, and, and they catch you, they will add to, as a new criminal charge, they'll say you violated your your bail condition. So let's say you're charged with, uh, I don't know, aggravated assault. You beat somebody into a pulp. You get released back on the street. You get told that you're not to go into a certain bar or a certain part of town. You're not to associate with certain people. Okay, so you get caught associating with somebody that, according to your bail conditions, you're not supposed to associate with. What do they do? They will arrest you and charge you. And they'll add that. So now you're, you've got a, a, an additional criminal charge of violating your bill condition. Do they lock you up for seven weeks? No. It, routinely, uh, people that are, even people with a lengthy criminal record, so they've, they've committed you know, violent assaults more than once, or they've done their, you know, their break and enter, or their, uh, their, their drug dealing, what have you. They've got, they've got a lengthy rap sheet, and yet they don't go to jail for seven weeks. And here we have somebody who's facing criminal charges who didn't even have a truck with her in Ottawa. But even if she had, like, you know, parking your truck illegally, (laughs) you know, it's not a crime. So this is really sad uh, that we've, we've sunk to this level in Canada where peaceful protesters in Ottawa get criminal charges are being charged criminally. And then Tamara Leach uh, as a leader is being punished. And this is on par with the banana Republic, some repressive third world regime where you criticize the prime minister. Next thing you know, you're in jail on some trumped up, you know, you're charged with, with uh, fraud or theft or corruption, or you're charged with something and you get locked up in jail, but everybody knows why, why are you really in jail? Well, it's because you criticize the prime minister. Right, charges yeah. are trumped up. I actually did get to meet her face to face, and that was uh, delightful. And uh, yes, she is as she seems, as nice as she seems. Uh, so I was uh, pleasantly, uh, well, not surprised, but I was happy to see that in person she's just as she comes across in the media. So I'll just put that in. Uh, I should just explain to our audience we're not going to discuss her speech right now because we're going to wait to see if that gets released. But uh, I will say it was very interesting, and I don't want to quote from memory about it, and I don't think John does either. So and I didn't take notes. I, I was just really yeah, so kind of taking it, it was It was a news speech, though. It was good, and uh, some of it was reflections on her time in prison, I thought was uh, was very interesting. I hope that uh, notes for that will come out so that uh, we don't misrepresent it when we do discuss it. I anticipate that. Tamara's speech in Toronto in June and Tamara's speech in Calgary in August will both be posted on our website in due course uh, you know, within the next few days or weeks. I think those speeches will be there. And I anticipate that uh, Brian Peckford's speech or speeches will also be posted on our website. And um, now there I do have notes because I have the speech that Brian Peckford gave in Vancouver. I want to touch on some parts of it now that all three dinners are concluded, right? Because we wanted to, right, yeah. we, we held back some information just out of fairness for people that have 
bought tickets that you're getting some uh, exclusive content or you're getting it earlier, you're getting it live, right? But now that all three dinners are, are concluded, uh, we'll be putting all kinds of stuff on the uh, on our website. That's right, yeah. So the, that content will be released, but since we can't refer to it yet, we'll discuss it as it as it comes about. So, so Brian Peckford was Premier of Newfoundland from 1979 to 1989, and that happens to include the time period uh, in the years and months leading up to April of 1982. It was April the 17th when the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms was signed into law and became part of our constitution. But of course, there are several years of uh, conferences, meetings, and, and whatnot. This was a radical transformation away from the British-style sovereignty of parliament to an American-style system where you could take a law to court and you could say, well, this law that, that was passed by the federal parliament or this law that was passed by a provincial legislature, this violates my freedom of speech, religion, conscience, association, peaceful assembly, or it violates my my right to bodily autonomy because I'm, you know, a law that coerces you to receive a medical treatment or, or vaccine or something is, is a law that violates uh, the right to life, liberty, security of the person. And this was a radical shift. I, I always find it very amusing to think that Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who was the prime minister of the day, was quite anti-American, uh, as many Canadians have been and many Canadians are, and yet he Americanized our country to a very large extent by rejecting the British sovereignty of parliament and giving us a new, new system. That's an American style system of constitutional democracy where you can take a lot of court and a judge can strike down the law uh, as being an unjustified violation of one of your rights and freedoms. This was not the British system, the British system that we had until 1982 the only way to change a law was through the democratic process. So federally, provincially, you elect different people or different parties, or you lobby the existing people in power to, to you know, make the changes that you want. So it's, it's, it's more of a democracy rather than a, a system where unelected, unaccountable judges can strike down laws. I don't well maybe our prime minister uh just hated the british more than the americans <laughs> i don't know Perhaps, why he would yeah yeah speculation what what's interesting is that brian so brian peckford in the uh, in the speech and i encourage people to go online it's posted i believe on the website of true north and um we don't have time to go through it but it it's worth reading because he's somebody who participated in all these meetings prior to April of 1982, and there's all kinds of negotiations as to what would go into the charter and what would not. And at one point, Pierre Elliott Trudeau got very fed up with these non-cooperative premiers who were just not, uh, you know, completely buying into his vision. And he said, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the prime minister said, well, I don't need you provincial premiers. The federal government can unilaterally change the constitution and add in our, our, uh, our charter of rights and freedoms. As his uh, hagiographers often said, he didn't suffer fools lately. <laughs> God, I got sick of hearing that one. So quoting, quoting briefly a segment of, um, 
of uh, Brian Peckford's uh, speech. This rather good start was abruptly halted by the Prime Minister at the time, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, indicating that the premiers were too difficult and that he and his administration could and would go it alone. He then had a bill passed in the Parliament to unilaterally patriate the Constitution with his version of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It was as a result of this provocation that eight of the provinces indicated that they opposed this federal move, with two of the provinces, Ontario and New Brunswick, supporting the move. The eight provinces went to court saying that the federal action was unconstitutional. In a groundbreaking ruling on September the 28th, 1981, the Supreme Court of Canada, many of its members, friends of the then Prime Minister, ruled that indeed the federal move by Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau was unconstitutional and that a substantial number of provinces needed to agree for any such action. The Supreme Court members then were friends of the law first, friends of the, yes, friends of the prime line. minister and second. Peck, Peck was saying that, yeah. And this is the rule of law. This is, how, this is how it should be, that that even if the prime minister is personal friends with, you know, three out of nine or five out of nine, and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, right? That, you know, the the, the prime minister could have lunch with, with a, a member of, of the Supreme Court and, you know, that's fine. But when the Supreme Court justices are carrying out their duties of issuing rulings on disputes that have been placed before them. And, you know, in this case, a dispute between the federal and provincial governments that notwithstanding whatever personal friendship they might have with the prime minister of the day, they're going to rule according to law. And this is what. So that was the first constitutional challenge of the new constitution happened before it was even ratified. You could describe it that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so then, of course, Pierre Elliott Trudeau had to go back to negotiating with the premiers. And there was uh, an agreement that was reached, which unfortunately excluded Quebec, which, and I I lived in Quebec for three years when I was going, doing my political science degree at Laval University. In Quebec, there is a very strong belief that Quebec was betrayed Quebec was knifed in the back and it was the night of the long knives and that these uh, provinces had deliberately excluded Quebec. What Premier Peckford says is that the um, the premiers as well as other members of the delegation, each, each province would have a premier, but they might have, I don't know, two, four, six, eight, whatever number of other senior constitutional advisors and senior civil servants and uh, you know, the, the minister of, of justice of each province or the minister, minister of intergovernmental affairs, what have you. And so the, um, the delegations were all at, uh, at a hotel in Ottawa, may have been the, uh, the, the Chateau Laurier. And the Premier René Levesque, the Quebec Premier and the Quebec delegation, they were... Across the river in Hull, Quebec. Hull is the Quebec city right across from Ottawa. And they were there. They were off by themselves. And nobody knew where they were. And this is 1981, 82. Nobody's got a cell phone yet. I think that the first cell phone started to be used in the late 1980s. These, you know, big, bulky contraptions. Yeah, shoebox size. So... He said, you know, this was no, there was no intention to exclude Quebec, but we couldn't find the Quebec 
delegation, right? So you can imagine a, a world without cell phones. And so if, you know, if your friend takes off and goes somewhere, I, you cannot get in touch with your friend, right? Those of us who are a little bit older will remember that world. If your friend takes off, uh, like you could phone around to ask wh- where they might be, but but you really don't know. Like you're just, you're not in touch with each other, right? And uh, so that's just an interesting uh, side note. I'm going to skip to the conclusions and go through those because at the end of uh, Premier Peckford's speech. Well, maybe I could just interject quickly with my observation. The one thing that I found quite gripping in the speech was his observation that, you know, when people talk about opening up the charter again to, you know, ensure our rights are fully protected, if we actually have to open up the charter again, a whole other bunch of things will suddenly come into play as well. In other words, the whole constitution. So, you know, there's going to be all kinds of governance issues brought up, whether it's provinces or first nations and things like this. And this is something that people have to realize if they're going to lobby to, you know, get the charter shored up, you know, that once you open that up, you know, buckle up because a lot of things are going to happen. So it was a good warning. I thought anyway, sorry, go ahead. Conclusions. So Premier Peckford in his speech proposes what he calls a Magna Carta for Canada, a first step at real change. So some of the points include the following. First of all, a citizen-led national inquiry into the actions of all the 14 governments of Canada to determine the necessity and constitutionality of their mandates and lockdowns. And so 14 governments referring to one federal, 10 provincial, three territorial is 14 And he says those found guilty of wrongdoing uh, should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Accountability must be the hallmark of all reform moving forward. So great there. Um, Second point, all registered political parties in Canada must produce annual publicly audited financial statements. Sounds pretty reasonable to me. Uh, Thirdly, legislation must be introduced to make it unlawful for an elected member of, of a parliament in Canada to serve if they've broken a Canadian law. And uh, he referenced the current prime minister uh, saying current prime minister has broken the the law five times and uh, goes on to say education from grade eight to 12 must include in its curriculum mandatory civics subject. We must know and understand how our country works in order to fully participate in it. Ah. Oh, I like this one. Parliament's power must be reestablished. The power of the Prime Minister's office must be reduced. And we, oh, have, we yeah. have moved far away from this. I, I was told by somebody who was alive at the time that up until the time of, in the time of, of John Diefenbaker, Lester Pearson, in the 50s and 60s, the Prime Minister could comment on his uh, personal view on something. And it was understood that he was the first minister in cabinet, but he wasn't, you know, the king. And so the prime minister could say, oh, well, I personally think this or that and whatever would go into cabinet. And we have moved away from this and it started with Trudeau, but it got worse under Mulroney and then it got worse under Chrétien and worse under Harper and now worse under Trudeau II is that the, you have this uh, all-powerful prime minister's office 
And we have moved a great deal away from the healthy separation between the elected MPs uh, versus the prime minister's office that now dictates not just executive action, but, but also dictates the legislative agenda that is going through parliament. So we have a huge concentration of power in the PMO, which 50 years ago was, was not the case. And my understanding is in, in the United Kingdom, you still have uh, 50 backbenchers can tell the prime minister to go jump in the lake. And the prime minister does not have that control over the House of Commons, which Canadian prime minister has in Canada over Canada's House of Commons. I think that Peckford cited some stats. Those were the things that had people in the audience gasping. I think it was something like a staff of 1,500 people answering to the prime minister and something like 7,000 deputy ministers. I mean, it was just like astounding the amount of – those are all appointed by the PMO. So, you know, just sheer numbers look at the uh, the volume of people that are beholden to the PMO. And Brian Peckford calls for a law restricting the workforce of the Privy Council office and the Prime Minister's right. office. Combined, it must not exceed 500 people. So wow. that would yeah. uh, be a radical Cut change. Uh, he calls for a law to ensure that parliamentary committees cannot refuse to hear testimony that witnesses want to present. For example, the SNC-Lavalin affair and Jody Wilson-Raybould. So, I mean, that was testimony that was cut off by the Liberal majority on the Parliamentary Committee, and she could not testify as to what had gone on. Peckford said it was supported by the NDP, too. I remember that part. Yeah. He recommends that the appointment process for the Supreme Court and for federal judges must go through the Parliament, and Parliament's decisions are final. Uh, Currently, it is effectively the Prime Minister. It is ordering counsel, which is Cabinet, which is the Prime Minister, Now, the Prime Minister might choose to follow the advice of the Justice Minister, who might choose to follow the advice of these uh, appointment committees. So, I mean, I'm not suggesting that there's no consultation, but effectively, it's the Prime Minister who unilaterally appoints judges in Canada, and there's no parliamentary oversight whatsoever. And Peckford used this phrase, um, some of you out there... Uh, might know where I'm going with this. He used the uh, the term administrative state when referring to all of this. Very heartened to hear that. Another uh, recommendation of Brian Peckford is that uh, balanced budgets must be legislated in all the parliaments of the country, so federal and provincial, can only be breached in times of war or insurrection. And of course, well, I happen to agree Another crucial point, he says, the two principles that introduce the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms are the supremacy of God and the rule of law. And uh, he notes that they are followed by a colon. And Premier Peckford is a former English teacher before he was uh, elected. So everything that flows uh, is announced by this colon. So we have to view the Constitution in light of the supremacy of God and the rule of law. He got very animated at this point, by the way. So, yes, this colon uh, was quite dramatic when he uh, went into this section about his speech. So if you can uh, imagine a politician getting very fiery when talking about the creation of that opening clause, uh, yeah, that was uh, he was he was flexing at the knee and he was gesticulating as well. It was it was quite uh, 
quite entertaining. So the Justice Center was very blessed to have had two keynote speakers in Calgary, both Tamara Leach and Brian Peckford. That made it a little bit like the Toronto dinner with the two keynote speakers of of um, Rex Murphy, who was fantastic. I anticipate that his speech from June, at the entire evening from June, uh, will be posted on our website. There's great videos there. The 2019 uh, evening where the award was presented to Christy Blatchford, I mean, that was memorable. Her speech is fantastic. The preceding year, it was Mark Stein, and he was introduced by Conrad Black, who gave a fantastic speech. Uh, it was you know long introduction, like a ten minute introduction, or but you know worth worth every second. It was just fantastic, and then Mark Mark Stein was was fantastic, and uh, so that will uh, that that will be up at www.jccf.ca. I just want to give a special shout out to uh, your communicate our communications director Marty Cathcart because. Uh, she did that opening video for Tamara's speech this year, but during that Zoom meeting, the, the last award where we were on a Zoom meeting, her team put together a knock your socks off video that's still up there that was honoring, uh, how did you phrase it? The people Canadians resisting, resisting unconstitutional lockdowns. And yeah. Yeah. So that, we, we had a, we, we had a dinner scheduled for, um, for September. And when vaccine passports came in, we decided that we could not in good conscience as advocates for charter rights and freedoms, that we would at our own event, uh, engage in the vicious and unscientific discrimination and exclude people uh, who had not gotten a COVID shot and be the government's enforcers and to enforce an unjust law in, in that fashion. So we, uh, we canceled the in-person dinner that uh, had been scheduled and we went to an, an online event. And so we got great speeches yeah. there from uh, Dr. Francis Christian from Saskatchewan. Well. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford university. And then the video, all yeah, of it, all, all of it good. Yeah. Good to revisit it as well. And as things go up, uh, we'll mention it or if we don't downright dissect it on this show. One of the things that uh, of course, Peckford mentioned because he is part of the lawsuit against the travel bans during the last week, just prior to the dinner, the JCCF issued a press release regarding the challenge to the, the hearing that is the, the federal government had said that they want to declare this moot and have the whole thing dismissed. And that during the last week, just prior to the dinner, the JCCF, issued a rebuttal about that. Yes, we filed a brief in court. Um, I, I find it shocking, almost unbelievable, that the federal government would even try to argue mootness when they have merely suspended the um, the discrimination against uh, people not taking the COVID shot. Our, our brief, of course, says unvaccinated, 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 unvaccinated. But I think... Uh, and, and that's fine as far as the brief goes. But I, I, I try to avoid the term because most of the people, uh, I'd venture, I guess, 90%, 95% of the people that uh, have not taken the COVID shot, they're not unvaccinated. They have their polio uh, vaccine. They have all their other childhood vaccines, and they're not anti-vaxxers. But this particular vaccine that was uh, developed in a rush and of course, uh, pursuant to the big lie that COVID is as deadly as the Spanish flu of 1918, 
that this is such an unusual killer that, you know, we can just put something out on the market uh, and, and really pressure, effectively coerce people into taking it when there's no long-term safety data. And of course, any thinking person understands that there's all kinds of drugs and medications and treatments uh, in the past century or probably even further back in time where you don't know um, what harmful effects are going to be there until five or 10 or 15 years down the road. And there seems to be more and more evidence emerging uh, slowly but surely uh, about all kinds of vaccine harms. And, you know, time will tell. Some of that is anecdotal and, you know, might not be subject yet to, uh, you know, formal scientific report. Uh, others is, is more academic. And anyway, it's hardly, yeah. it's hardly academic that the uh, vaccine isn't working very well. I mean, that is the one of the, the key points uh, for their argument is that, you know, you're going to sl- stop the spread. But it apparently isn't doing that. And that but it didn't stop well the known. spread. I mean, we know, yeah, we know that it yeah. didn't. It did not stop the spread. It didn't give us the herd immunity because herd immunity is where you get to a point where uh, 60, 70 percent of the people have been exposed to a virus, and the virus no longer has anywhere to go. So that's the herd immunity, uh, which could have been done with COVID because COVID, if you're not 85 years old and in a nursing home and suffering from you know, one or two or three or four serious health conditions like cancer and emphysema and uh, heart disease and other serious illnesses. And if you're not in that category of 85 years old in a nursing home, then COVID is as much of a threat to you as getting killed by a car accident. I mean, that's kind of your risk of death. Every time you get into a car, your risk of death is the same as as your risk of death from COVID. And people don't think twice about getting into a car because you want to live your life and uh, you don't want to be just staying at home all the time. So back to the mootness issue. So if there was a dispute, let's say, between, uh, let's say there's a divorcing couple, husband and wife, and they're fighting over uh, custody of the dog. Let's say they have no kids. And this actually happens in real life. The, b- both parties want the dog, okay? So they go into court to fight over who's going to have the dog or whether it's like full custody or whether, you know, shared. Is there going to be visitation? Uh, how is this going to work? Let's say the dog dies. Well, now it's moot because the, the court could rule, you know, about who ought to have had the dog if the dog was alive, but it's kind of far-fetched. I mean, the dog's dead. So it would be a waste of the court's resources to uh, continue on and, you know, listen to the arguments and look at the evidence for the court to then render a decision uh, as to who should get the dog. It's moot. You could probably think of all kinds of other examples where there's a dispute maybe about who owns an apple tree that is, you know, the both neighbors are fighting over the fruit and uh, maybe there's a tornado destroys the apple tree and it becomes moot. Now the doctrine of, of the Supreme court of Canada, it's been around for decades is that an issue is not moot. If it is a live issue between the parties or even a potentially live issue that if it, if it can impact real life then it's not moot 
So here you have a situation where the federal government violates the mobility rights with this vaccine mandate that if you have not taken the COVID shot, you cannot get onto uh, an airplane. And here's what's really interesting. On June the 14th, I'm going to quote, uh, there's the suspension announcement. So the transportation minister, along with other federal ministers, held a press conference, announced that as of June 20th, 2022, travel vaccine mandates would be, quote, suspended. Now, the suspension announcement included the following statement, quote, the government of Canada will not hesitate to make adjustments based on the latest public health advice and science, (laughs) yeah, right, to keep Canadians safe. This could include an up-to-date vaccination mandate at the border, the re-imposition of public service and transport vaccine vaccination mandates, and the introduction of vaccination mandates in federally regulated workplaces in the fall if needed. End of quote. The federal government's backgrounder uh, document to the announcement used the word suspend and its derivations seven times. The travel vaccine mandates have not ended as suggested by the federal government. So I hope that the, uh, to me, this is a no brainer. uh, I would say it's not, even if the federal government abolished the policy and said we're rescinding the order or the Mm -hmm. the order, the, the cabinet order expires it's rescinded. Even there, I would say it's not moot because if the government can get away with saying this is moot and avoid the decision, that basically sends a signal to the federal government and to every provincial government that you can impose charter violating policies that are not based on science, that are unjustified violations of our rights and freedoms. And then the moment that somebody goes through the time, effort, and energy and expense of taking it to court – Right, because the Justice Center on on these cases, we've we've got two, three, four lawyers working on some of these cases. They're huge. You've got to work with your expert witnesses. Uh, you've got to prepare expert reports. You have to cross examine the government's affiants, including their medical witnesses and and other bureaucrats. I mean, it, it's a huge amount of time, effort, and energy. It's not something like where an individual could file a statement of claim and just walk into court and make some arguments. It, it really does not work that way. But if if this is deemed to be moot, then you get a situation where the governments can violate our, our rights and freedoms. And then the moment that, that, that they, they get challenged in court, the government can just uh, say, oh, well, we changed our minds and, you know, or partway through the court action and can just be like a light switch and would never be held to account. Right. And here, especially there... So even if they had rescinded the order or the order had expired, it would not be moot in my view. But but in this particular case, the federal government hasn't even said that the policy has ended. They've just said it's been suspended and they've said themselves, we can bring it in, we can bring it back in at any time. Right. So uh, hopefully the court will... Uh, dismiss the federal government's application for mootness. Yeah, see through it. I see it as a tactic, actually. And I just want to mention, you know, in that the Emergencies Act was kind of a mini version of this. You know, they bring in the Emergencies Act, quickly do what they want to do. And then when they get challenged, or it looks like they're about to get challenged by the Senate, they withdraw it. So there's a huge violation of rights and freedoms. And then uh, they quickly retreat uh, after they've done their dirty work. So... I see this kind of as the same thing in a way. And uh, I don't think we should let them get away with it. 
So I think this will be argued in September yeah. and, uh, and then there's further hearing on the same. This is the Brian Peckford action, which has been consolidated with another court action launched by Maxime Bernier. And to the best of my knowledge, two other court actions that the Justice Center is not involved with, but the four actions are moving ahead together. Uh, and it, it's great, actually, because these other court actions also have uh, fantastic lawyers that are working on them. And so it is uh, it is a collaborative effort when it comes to cross-examining these government officials. Right. Now, there are some who have said that the whole purpose of the vaccine mandates was to usher in a digital ID uh, that the government would then use to control, uh, micromanage our lives. And so this kind of segues into the whole topic of digital ID. That would be a, another reason why they would just want to kick the can down the road for a little while while they work like crazy, you know, getting this Arrive Can app in all the airports across Canada. And then that establishes the digital ID. And then they really don't care about the vaccine mandates or the cases there. Uh, they can... Once they get the, uh, the the case declared moot, then they can bring in anything they like. JCCF is actually hosting a seminar on this topic on August 16th, an online seminar. And I'll put a link down into the, uh, in the show notes below. I think you have to register for that event uh, hosted by um, one of the lawyers. Is that correct, John? Yeah. Adam Kerr is one of our staff lawyers, yeah. and he will be presenting that seminar. And it follows on the wake of the paper that we've released, Canada's Road to Beijing. Right. And that was released last week. It is online, and it has a, a great executive summary for you know many people. It's only twenty pages, so it's it's not you know too long to get through. But if you're short on time, there's a there's a very helpful executive summary. And this dovetails with the uh, news story by Cosman Zerza of the True North, uh, August 10th story on True North website, Trudeau government to introduce national digital identity program. So this is coming at uh, almost the same day that the Justice Center has released Canada's Road to Beijing. Mm -hmm. So this story talks about Canada's Digital Ambition 2022, which is a document signed off by President of the Treasury Board, uh, Mona Fortier, and Chief Information Officer of Canada, Catherine Luelo. And so a quote from this report, the COVID-19 pandemic highlighted the need for government services to be accessible and flexible in the digital age. Um, the next step in making services more convenient, yeah, mm, right. yes, it's all about us and our convenience, is a federal digital identity program integrated with pre-existing provincial platforms. So now we can extend the vicious and unscientific discrimination, uh, which forced everybody, including those who have received the COVID vaccines, had to disclose personal medical information to total strangers like the host at a restaurant or the uh, front counter attendant uh, at a gym, et cetera. And we had to disclose personal private medical information to total strangers because the government had this digital ID QR code, which linked up to whether somebody had had the COVID shots or not. Right. It seems like they're going at breakneck speed with this as if they want to sort of get ahead of the opposition before anybody catches on to what they're doing. 
I think the next step is step. I think the next the next publicity step is to issue a bunch of polls saying that uh, you know the majority of Canadians support digital ID. Yeah. Okay. Push poll. Well, so then quoting again from this federal report, quote, digital identity is the electronic equivalent of a recognized proof of identity document, for example, driver's license, passport, and confirms that you are who you say you are in a digital context. End of quote. I don't have a problem with the you know, passports, I guess we need them. Uh, there's a justification and it's it's debatable, but I guess if you're a pure libertarian or uh, anarcho-capitalist or anarchist, you would say, you know, the whole, there's, there's no borders, there's no countries, there's no passports. Okay, uh, back to reality. We do have countries, they do have borders. So you, you know, you could justify passports on the basis of uh, keeping out foreigners because a country that has no borders is not really a country. It's kind of a joke of a country. So you have a passport to distinguish your own citizens, like you're allowed back in versus people from other countries. And it's like, okay, you're here on, uh, you're here on vacation or whatever. And so we keep track of, of that. So we have our borders, we control our borders. Uh, we know the names of foreigners that are in our country and whether they're supposed to be here, you know, whether they're, permanent residents or whether they're just tourists who are supposed to go back after three months, uh, what have you. And the driver's license, I could see that there's, yeah, you know, if somebody's, I guess, drunk driving, you know, more than once and is a threat and then you have your driver's license taken away. So the government can distinguish between those who have a driver's license, which means that they're okay to drive, but maybe if you're somebody that you've killed a number of people because of your repeated impaired driving, uh, so we're going to take your driver's license away because you're not allowed to drive at all. And But in and of itself, that is not, in my view, a serious threat to my privacy because having a driver's license, having a passport, the government does not know where I am. They don't know what I buy. They don't know what where I, I go, they don't know what clubs uh, or restaurants or gyms I might be a member of or how frequently I might go there. The scary thing that we have to fight against is a situation where the government knows where you are, where the government knows where all 38 million Canadians are and where they've been, where they were yesterday and last week and last month, and where the government knows what 38 million Canadians are spending. What are we buying what are we selling? Where are we buying it? What do we own? Who do if we the government donate has to? That kind of, and who do we donate well, to? So what, you can you have know. your bank account frozen because the right. the the prime minister is upset over uh, financial support uh, directed at some uh, some peaceful protesters in Ottawa. Well, yeah, I, that's they have like Twitchy Freeland and Prime Minister Blackface have proven that they are untrustworthy, and that's. What we have to consider, and the provincial premiers oh, yeah. with the vaccine passports. That's true. Yeah, I mean, sorry. It's, it's not. Uh, it's not just those two. Yeah, right? no. I just I don't want to fixate only on the on the federal. I think the federal government is probably currently is, is the most enthusiastic human rights violator as compared to the premiers. However, uh, some of these premiers, you know, you look at your curfews in Quebec. Right. I mean, the fact that you 
you know, because we all know that COVID gets especially dangerous after 8 p.m., right? COVID at 7.30 is not that bad, but at 8 o'clock, COVID outside is really deadly. So, you know, you can't be outside after dark. I mean, this kind of stuff, the the level of repression in Quebec where the police could get uh, instant warrants by telephone, which is outrageous. You know, you have centuries of common law tradition that your home is your castle. So if the police want to come into your home, a policeman has to swear an affidavit setting out the evidence as to why they want special permission to go into your house because maybe, I don't know, whatever, a drug dealing, or maybe you've kidnapped somebody and you're confining them in your basement or you know whatever horrible reason. But it, it, it's a very narrow case-by-case and here under the lockdowns in Quebec, the police could just phone in and obtain a warrant by phone without needing to appear before a judge or swear an affidavit. So that's a level of repression we see provincially as well. Okay, no, granted, I, um, I, I should have said that as well. It, it's definitely all levels of government here. But I mean, the real yeah. fear is the abuse of power, you know, giving so much power to any government to know where you are, as you said, location, for instance, or what you buy or, you know, what you... Or who you donate to. Who you donate to, yeah, that we should keep coming back so the, to that. So the danger is if you have a centralized database. Mm. I mean, I'm, I, I know we've moved to computers in the last 50 years, you know, everything, everything's on computer now. I think 50 years ago, pretty much everything governmental was, was on paper. Uh, I think there were lots of paper records, you know, even 40 years ago, it was mostly paper records. And so, so things have moved to, to uh, computers. So, okay. In and of itself, not necessarily a problem. So for example, uh, there's probably a computerized 50 years ago, our income tax, there would have been paper records. And so the federal government might have had a file on you with your individual paper tax returns and documentations year after year. So today, there's a computerized, you know, for every taxpayer, uh, the government, there's probably a computer file where the government could pull up and say that Mark Smith uh, this year earned this much money and paid this much federal tax, paid this much provincial tax, donated this much to charity, and so on and so forth. So we've got the government records in and of itself, not necessarily a problem. I mean, I suppose, you know, if we want to collect our taxes and you got to keep the records and, and what have you. The problem becomes when there's a centralized computer database as opposed to separate ones. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's one thing that – so the federal government's got a database uh, with my uh, tax returns. And then if I have a criminal record, which I don't, but if I did, there'd be a database where there's a John Carpe criminal record. But other, other than that – it's the government doesn't have that much power or control as what they would get with a centralized computer database where my movements, my travel, you know, government says, well, you got to have a GPS in your cell phone because we got to protect everybody from the virus. So we have to save lives. So you have to get a cell phone. Uh, oh, you can't afford one, but we'll, we'll buy one for you. And we're going to have a cell phone with a GPS tracking device. So we know where you are at all times. It's for your own good. It's to protect you from uh, dying of the scary virus. And so the government knows where we are because they have a GPS device that is in the phone and they make it mandatory for you to carry your phone with you at all times. And anybody who says, well, they would never do that. Well, why do we right now have mandatory use of ArriveCan app 
when the government could say, you know, we want proof of vaccination, but that, you know, if you're 85 years old, you're going to have a sheet of paper that was given to you uh, when you get got your your first shot and your second shot, and it's going to say that that you got your second shot this date, this time, this place, administered by so and so, blah blah blah, and you've got your second shot, you've got your booster shot, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that right now the government says no, not good enough, you can't you can't use a a piece of paper that you know signed by whoever gave the shot. That's not good enough. You have to use your arrive can app. That to me suggests this interest in uh, forcing people to use technology and uh, uh, tracking people. Right. Yeah. It's uh, they say it's for your benefit, but I have a feeling it's for theirs. So um, yes, I'm glad we're doing seminars on it. I'm glad we're releasing papers on it, and I hope the campaign will continue the awareness campaign. Well, that's a a good point to end on right there, John. I think we can call an end to this week's podcast, episode 31 of Justice with John Carpe. Uh, Great dinner and a great podcast. I look forward to talking to you next week. Talk to you next week, Kevin. 